strong. We can rejoice in the hope that is certain, not because we are strong, but because you've given us your spirit and given us your promise that through Christ in us, uh, we will see you one day. We'll see the glory, your glory. We'll see your goodness on display, the glory of your plan, the glory of salvation. And Lord, you give life through your word as we hear it. May your spirit be at work among us in this room t- today, even, that we would be changed, that we would be able to see what our natural eyes could not see, so that we might be like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read our text for this morning, which is chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in a synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this, is this not, is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own house, in, his own, in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. They said to them, whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed and that, that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, 
knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet with his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Stop there. So this is a really stark contrast to the previous chapter. If you remember what happened in chapter five, it was a, a set of victories on Jesus' part, right? Victory over nature, over the demonic world, over sickness and in death. Mark strings these stories along to emphasize the authority of Jesus and that we are to, to put our faith in him. That shows up in almost all the stories in chapter 5. We hear, remember Jesus' words, do not fear, only believe. Something we need to tell ourselves regularly, right? Do not fear, only trust the Lord. But as we enter chapter 6, we're rounding a corner. People loved the miracles of Jesus but the question is, do they really love Jesus? Do they love what Jesus says about himself and his kingdom? How are people responding to his message? When Jesus goes around preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Everyone likes what Jesus promises, but the reality is not everybody likes what Jesus preaches. So the story of the Bible is really a story about light and darkness. It's a book that is not just a friendly book of, of nice advice for well-meaning people. It's a story of a battle. From the opening pages, we see the struggle. We see Satan in the garden. Then we follow the whole story, and then you get up to the very end of the book, and you see Satan being cast into the lake of fire. Opposition to the kingdom of God is the norm in this world. It's important that people, that we understand that, all right? If a soldier goes in the battle, they're preparing them to not face friendliness on the other side. They're pre preparing them to face opposition. Living, we need to be living in expectation, that people are not going to like and appreciate us for Christ's sake. Although we do want to love, we love being liked, we love succeeding, we love being welcomed. But if we love that too much, 
I promise you that it'll disengage us from the mission that we're called to. If we fear so much that people will reject us, we will be quiet. We will not engage. And I could, I won't, but I could, I could ask for a show of hands. How many of you have not spoken boldly for the sake of Christ for fear of what someone would say, for fear of being rejected? I suspect most of our hands would go up because we, we, we face the battle at some moment and in fear we step back. Mark's hearers, those who originally received this gospel, didn't need to be reminded that to follow Jesus was risky. That being rejected would be something they should expect. They didn't need to be reminded about that because they were living it. They faced it in ways that we can't imagine. They needed to be reminded, actually, to persevere to be encouraged, even through uh, uh, rejection and persecution. So it does us well to be reminded of the reality of the rejection that Christians will face for the sake of Christ. Because if we stand for Christ, I promise you, we're going to stand out. And it won't be for the sake that people want to praise us. The world will shame us, ignore us, resist us, um, assign false motives to us. And just reject what we're saying. That's probably the hardest one for us sometimes, is that assigning false motives. You, it's, you don't love me. That's why you say these things. You don't care about me. You don't, you know, all these motives attributed to us that then shut us up for fear of being rejected, being misunderstood. So in chapter 6, these first three stories we're going to look at this morning deal with rejection for the sake of Christ's kingdom. And so the main idea this morning is the work of the kingdom involves rejection. The work of the kingdom involves rejection. As much as we'd like actually the Christian life to look like chapter 5, it actually looks more like chapter 6. So let's begin. Point 1, Jesus is rejected. Jesus is rejected. So after some time, Jesus had been doing ministry in Capernaum. That's where we were left off at the end of chapter 5. In chapter 6, verse 1, it tells us that Jesus was now going to his hometown, going to Nazareth, traveling about 25 miles south, um, southeast of Capernaum to visit family, old friends, to continue his ministry, to go to preach to them. And as would be expected of a man like Jesus, he was given an opportunity to preach in the synagogue, given an opportunity to teach. When we think of Jesus speaking in Nazareth, sometimes we might think of that time that Jesus was in Nazareth and he read from the book of Isaiah and they rejected the message when he was there. He said this was fulfilled in their hearing. It's not likely that this is the case. This is probably a case, another opportunity after that when Jesus went. He's giving another opportunity to hear about the gospel. I think it's right to assume that Jesus was keeping with his main message, his authority, his identity about the kingdom of God, about the need for people to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And the story tells us that when they heard Jesus saying these things, Again, from his own lips, it says that they were astonished. 
I don't think they were astonished just at what he was saying, although I think that is true. I think they were astonished at who it was that was saying these things to them. Notice the questions. Where did Jesus get these things? Who gave him this wisdom, this insight, this perspective that he talks in this way? How are such mighty works done by his hands? But here's the key. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary. We see his brothers right here. We see his sisters right here. Don't we know this guy? We watched him grow up. And we know they don't believe because it says it right in the passage. It's almost as if I get the sense from those questions is, kind of who does he think he is coming back in here talking this way again? You can hear in the questions their amazement, their doubt, even their pride. In verse 3 it says, they took offense at him. They took offense at him. This, the idea here is that he was a stumbling block to them. What Jesus was saying to them They couldn't get over it. They weren't able to receive what he was saying, and they couldn't move past their questions. And so they began to distrust him, become skeptical of what he was saying. And then in verse 4, he condemns them for their lack of faith. They didn't believe. They didn't believe his message. Then he quotes this proverb, A prophet prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. I think that would have annoyed them too, right? Even angered them. He's, he's, he's insulting them. I mean, he's, he's describing reality, but he's saying, you know what? You guys don't recognize a prophet in your presence because he's from, because you watched him grow up, because he's from your house. Despite the victories, rejection, and opposition is the story of Jesus' ministry. Go back in the beginning through Mark. We won't turn there, but we know the Pharisees wanted to destroy him when they heard him preach, when they heard him teach. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, When he went home, the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to see him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Again, those closest to him. If you we, if we could sum up Jesus' ministry, if you kind of looked at it from above, from a distance, you, you really would sum it up in one word, right? Rejection. Remember what John says in the opening of his gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They liked the miracles. They could handle some of his teaching. But him, he was the problem. They hated him. They didn't like his claims of authority. They didn't like the way he talked about the kingdom of God. And that's going to increase throughout the story. When he goes on to describe about what, what the king's going to do, they, they resisted over and over again. No, that's not a good plan, Jesus. We got another plan for you. Ultimately, his claims of deity result in his rejection. So the Son of Man, the Son of God, is only seen in the story as the Son of Mary. They missed that he promised 
that he is the promised seed of Abraham and the son of David. All they could see was he was this boy that they'd seen grow up. Because he was a boy that they'd seen grow up. He was a man. He was a boy. He did need to learn to walk and talk and learn how to be a carpenter. But that's not all that he was. Jesus is always the stumbling block. Jesus is always the thing that keeps people from wanting to believe the gospel. All right, they're willing to, there's a lot of people who are willing to accept Jesus as a good teacher. They're willing to accept Jesus as maybe their higher power in life. Maybe even a prophet, somebody who loved people. Somebody, maybe he even healed people. Somebody who, who contributed something good to the world. But unbelief is rejection of Jesus as the one and only Savior of the world. When you say saying Jesus is the one who is, who is to be obeyed over all others, who is to be worshipped. He is the one who gave his life as a sacrifice for sin so that sinners, of which we are, cannot get to God on our own, and we need a Savior, and we need a Savior, who, one, who was, one who would die for us and rise again and come again. That's the message that keeps people from Christianity. They can pull out little phrases from Jesus and love those all day long. But when you start to hone in and say, but who is Jesus? Let me tell you about who he is, and let me tell you about what that means for you. And that's when the ears start to shut down. That's when the anger starts to rise. Even church, people can love church while not loving Jesus. The gospel centers on the person of Jesus. We can go to many places, but there's not many better places to go than when John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's making himself the means of salvation. He's saying, you must receive me to receive the kingdom. When Peter preaches in Acts 4 to the Jews, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. You rejected him. The builder, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. It's almost a rephrasing of what Jesus said, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And you rejected him. He is the gospel message. So not only must we believe that, but we must be on guard against anyone who speaks about truth, who speaks about goodness without talking about Jesus. Because he is the truth. He is goodness. The Father did not send a philosophy to the world. The Father did not send ideas to the world or a code of conduct. He sent his Son, right? And if we can't speak freely about Jesus, then we're not speaking about Christianity. In verse 6, it says, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And therefore, we could only do a few mighty deeds, heal a few people. He marveled that they didn't believe in him. He marveled at their rejection. 
I think, it's, I think it's something to marvel at because in light of all the evidence, of all the things that they had seen and heard about Jesus, yet despite all those things, they still reject. Because you can have all the evidence in the world and even experience great blessings from him. But if there is no faith in Jesus, there is no life. If there's no faith in Jesus, there's no salvation. I think of the, <clears throat> the book of Hebrews and all the passages in there that are warning us and encouraging us and admonishing us to keep believing. Don't, don't walk away from Jesus. If you, if you walk away from him, there's no life. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, speaking of those Hebrews who, who died in the wilderness, it says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, speaking to us, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, to reach entering God's rest. For the good news came to us, just as it came to them, to Israel. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's amazing because you know the story of Israel being taken out of Egypt and all, seeing the blessings, seeing the miracles, having the word of God. And they were so close to being able to enter the rest. But they didn't. Why? Because of their unbelief. How much more tragic for those people on that day in Nazareth? I mean, who knew Jesus better than those people knew him? To be so close, literally to be hearing the words of God from Jesus' mouth. And then Jesus said, they didn't believe. That's how close you can be. That's how close you can be and still be lost. How many people do we know, perhaps in this, even in this room, who know so much about Jesus? Who would say so many good things about Jesus? And would kind of give lip service to the goodness of all that church stuff. That's really good, you know, I should. It's good for me, it's good for people, it's good for the world. With all that knowledge, though, they still reject him. In other words, they will not bow before him. They do not love Jesus Christ. They won't submit to him. That would be the sorriest state of human existence. To be, to know so much yet be so far away. Well, it says at the end of the section that Jesus went about among the villages teaching. So, he didn't stop. He was rejected at home, and then he went out and began to continue his ministry. All right, the next section here. The disciples should plan for rejection. The disciples should plan for rejection. So verse 7, it's really a pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus, right? He's beginning to turn over his ministry to his disciples now. Up to this point, Jesus is the one doing it. And now he says, all right, disciples, now I'm going to send you out with my authority, and begin to do the things that I do. This is really the inbreaking of the expansion of the kingdom into the world. 
The, the kingdom doesn't grow just by the, merely the man Jesus Christ walking on this earth. He expands it through his disciples, multiplying his authority to others. It says he called his disciples, sent them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. They were his ambassadors with his authority to do what he does, preach like he preaches. Interestingly, he does this even though, I mean, the last chapter, they're like, who is he? You know, like, it's not they have all the answers yet. But they know enough to go out. And Jesus empowers them to learn how to follow him, how to live and do what he calls them to do. And then he gives them this instruction on how, to the, how they are to go out in verses 8 and 9. He says, I want you to only take a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts, only sandals and one tunic. This would be a good place to, to bring up the principle that uh, it's good for us to remember when we read our Bibles, that the Bible is written to them but for us. All right, the things in the Bible are spoken to people sometimes, but they're for our benefit, but they're not directly to us. The reason I say that is some people might read this and say, well, I guess when we go out, I should wear sandals and only bring one tunic. All right, this is Jesus speaking to those men in this situation and how they are to go on this particular mission. To them, but for us. There is something for us to gather from what is being said here, and it's not an evangelism uniform. Jesus is giving instructions. He's giving us a, a kingdom principle about ministry. Like what, what, what is going on in what he describes here to these guys? About what they're to wear. And then when they're supposed to go to a particular house and they're supposed to stay there until they depart. What's he trying to communicate about how they're to go out to advance the kingdom? I think what we see in what he's saying here is we see he wants them to go out and advance the kingdom with simplicity and faith. I want you to go out. I want you to be ready to go. I want you to trust me to provide for you when you go. Don't be so burdened down with things that you're not ready to move, that you're not ready to speak when I ask you to speak. Jesus says, I want you to enter the town. I want you to, to go to a house and just, when someone opens the doors, you stay with them. Just trust me, I'm going to provide for you. Don't look for something bigger. Don't look for something better. Just stay in that place. I will provide for you. Embrace the hospitality and be thankful. So that's what he gives to those disciples. I, there is a principle here for us. If, we want, if you want to be most ready... And I, and I want to be ready. I want to be ready to go and do whatever God wants me to do. I want to be most effective for the kingdom. Simplicity and faith are required. Now, when I say that, I'm not giving you a legalistic standard of what that means about simplicity. But the principle is absolutely true. The more I want to carry along in this life with me, the more that I think that I need the more, I'll just say, the more sluggish I get. The more sluggish I get. Kingdom work requires readiness to act, to speak, to go, to be flexible in faith. 
Everybody know everyone, if you've lived long enough, you know that this is true. I've observed it in my own life, you know. Being a single guy and not having a lot of things and everything. I put this, everything I had was in a box for a couple of years. And I was just like flexible to go. And it was, there was a blessing attached to that. I'm sure Bob's talking about that in his class last week about singleness. You know, there's a, when, God, when God gives someone that opportunity to be in a season of singleness or maybe singles in their whole life, there's also a simplicity that can come with that that makes someone more mobile and ready. But then life does get complicated. And, and, and when one, in my case, gets married and has children, all right, you take on new responsibilities. And those responsibilities are good, but also are complicated. They complicate life. You now have to have things you didn't have before. Or at least you choose to have things you didn't have before. And that can make you sluggish. So you just need to be careful. You need to realize the principle is true. The more you take with you, the more you carry with you, the more you think that you need to serve the Lord, sometimes that will be a hindrance. And I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. We need to be careful of that. So whether we are rich or we are poor, simplicity and faith are what we need to go about in doing the kingdom work that God calls us to. I think Jesus sends them out this way to demonstrate, to prove to them, you know what, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for you. You don't need to take a big sack of money with you. You don't need to have 10 sets of clothes. Just, just go, like, go out and preach the message, go to a place, watch me provide. Watch me work through you. Then Jesus gives instructions on what to do if their message is not received. He says, now, but I'm going to tell you what to do if when you go into town and you're preaching and people don't want to hear it. If a place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. If they don't receive you, they will listen, then here's what you're to do. Even if you're doing mighty works there, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. It's kind of a strange thing. We don't, we don't, we know, we don't shake dust off our feet. But back in, in, uh, in this day, There'd be times when a Jew might go into a Gentile city and symbolically do this, symbolizing the fact they had rejected, you know, these were people who reject God. So again, written to them before us, what's the principle here? That there are times when it is proper, proper to signal to a person or maybe a group, okay, you can remain in your rejection of God. Paul says this, um, I think it's the Ephesian elders in Acts where he says, I'm innocent of your blood. I gave you the whole counsel of God. You know, I have done my part to convey to you all that I know about Jesus, all that I know about his word. I've told you in every possible way I know how to tell you. I've done my job. But at some point, listener, you are responsible now to make a decision about what you're going to do about Jesus. And you are accountable to God for what you do about Jesus. 
There's no formula to present here to you on how to do this. Just like there's no formula about, hey, this is how you live a simple life or trust God in your particular circumstance with your stuff. I wouldn't even attempt to try to do that. And I wouldn't attempt to tell you to say, hey, well, you said it six times to somebody, now it's time to shake the dust off your feet. Love is patient, right? I'm going to be as patient as the day is long, hopefully. But somewhere there is a line Maybe when a community has rejected the gospel, that it's all right and it's proper to say, now all you have left is judgment. Like that's what remains for you if you reject Jesus. You know, a, a contemporary example that I think that some people can relate to from their own experience in life, you know, there are denominations, whole denominations of churches that persistently and consistently and hard-heartedly reject Jesus. Now, their churches, there's a sign on the front, but they reject Jesus. And someone may say, well, how, and I, I, gone, I grew up in this place, you know, what am I supposed to do? Should I keep going? I would say at some point, you, you leave. You say to, to the local pastor, you know, you're not preaching the gospel. You reject Jesus. And I can't stay here anymore. And give them the gospel because they don't have it. And there are times when God does turn people over. God does turn a church, maybe a whole denomination over to their sin. Because they've put it in writing and they have stamped, we do not believe what Jesus says. Now they don't say that. All, they won't say that to you. But just read the Bible compared to what they say. And you know that they are rejecting him. So, as followers of Jesus... They needed to be ready for rejection. Lastly, John the Baptist experiences the ultimate rejection. Verse 14 tells us that King Herod had heard about Jesus. All right, He, he hears the message. He, he hears what's going on in, in, his, uh, in his sphere, in his domain, and, and people talking about Jesus and what he's doing and what he's saying. And he starts to wonder, who is he? Who is he? I mean, hopefully you're getting that point here in the book of Mark. Who's Jesus? Herod's wondering. Is John the Baptist back from the dead? Is this uh, Elijah who's come back? Is he a prophet like the prophets of old? And then Mark tells us, it gives us a little flashback here. So remember, he just said at the beginning, is John the Baptist raised from the dead? And then Mark is going to go back and tell us, well, how did Mark die? Or how did John the Baptist die? And so that's what we have here, a recounting of the story of how John the Baptist uh, was killed, starting in verse 16. Um, I'm not going to go back and retell that story. I've just read it to you, and that can be something you do on your own time to remind yourself of the story. John was a man who was faithful to the call of God in his life. He faithfully prepared the way for Jesus. And in doing his work as a prophet, he also call, called out the sin of King Herod, where he had lit, was now with his brother's wife. And for this, John was thrown into prison. And really, it's just like one of the most dark and sinfully twisted stories, right, of what happens. But through this, these events, John the Baptist loses his life just because of the sinful 
selfish, self-centered desires of this woman Herodias who had a grudge against him, a grudge. In a, in a, in a sinful whim, this woman had John the Baptist killed. Why does Mark go back and tell us this story right here? Why is this inserted in this part of the, the gospel? Mark has been teaching us in the last two stories about the cost of the kingdom, the cost of following Jesus as one of his disciples. All right, in Nazareth, Jesus himself is rejected by his own people, by his own family. Then when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, I want you to go out in my name and do the things that I do. But I want you to know, in some places, they will not listen to you, and they will not receive you. Expect that when you go out. But for some, Mark is reminding us, for some, this rejection is going to look like what John the Baptist receives. He was faithful. If you know his life, he was simple and trusted God lived a life of simplicity. But he acted in the power of God. He spoke the truth to those who did not want to hear it. And for that, he's thrown in jail, thrown to a dungeon. And then that cell one night, as he sits there wondering, did I do something wrong? I mean, God called me to this. I had a really successful ministry going for a while, and now I'm in a prison. And here I am, wondering. And then one night, in that prison cell, a man came in, and maybe he didn't even say anything to him. And John's wondering, where, where am I going? What's, what's going on? The man comes and takes him to another room. And at some point, John realizes it. They're going to cut off my head. And maybe without even an explanation, and maybe that was a blessing. Could you imagine if they told him why they were going to cut it off his head? Because Herodias' daughter asked for your head on a plate. So that's why we're here. That was the cost John the Baptist paid for the kingdom of Christ. Think of all the other Christians, though, in history who have, who have died in similar ways. Alone. Wondering if what they did was the right thing. Was it worth it all? And then someone comes along and kills them because of some petty jealousy. Just to Make them an example for others to see. No retirement party. No, no, no thank you. No fanfare. Just rejection and an early death. Interestingly, verse 30 says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They, they come back, you know, giving the report. Jesus, we'd gone out, we'd done this, you know, we're teaching this, probably, the, you know, some of the victories they had. 
And that's right after the context of a, the most, like a gruesome death for following Jesus. What are we expecting as Christians? Like, what do you expect? Like in following Jesus, in, it's in many of you in this room strongly that you want to serve the Lord, and you are. And you want to do more. You want to, do, you want to be more faithful. You want to tell more people about Jesus. And that's, that's a huge blessing of, of being at Countryside. All right? This is common that we want to serve faithfully. And we want our life to make a difference for God's kingdom. But the question is, what do you expect when you do this? How are you expecting people to respond? I don't think it's going to be much different than what we see in this passage. <clears throat> there are certainly those who believed. And we should expect some people to believe. In fact, we should have confidence when we go out and share the gospel that people are going to get saved. Like, absolutely. It's going to give you boldness to know that there are people who are going to be saved when the gospel is shared with them. So all the more go out there and go village to village, person to person, and talk about Jesus. Go home and tell your family, whatever it is. Like, don't stop speaking. But I'd be wrong to, to not say, but don't expect rejection also. From all the same people. You may have two children in front of you. You may say, I'm going to share the gospel as boldly as I can. And one says, Dad, thank you. And they start to love the Lord. And one says, Dad, I don't want to hear about it anymore. And they reject. That would be what you could expect in life. So therefore, we do need to prepare ourselves. And I think that's what Mark is doing here. Preparing us. Jesus was preparing them. Prepare yourself. Prepare your children. Have you told your children that yet? Have you said, you know, if you're going to follow Jesus, I just want you to know that might mean that you will lose your job. That might mean you will lose some friends. And that may mean that you will lose your life someday. That at some point needs to be communicated to our children. We'll pray that it doesn't happen to them. Well, we don't want the extremes. In my heart, I don't want the extremes. But I do want them to know the cost. I do want them to experience some of that. And personal rejection is just the beginning that says, nope, eh, you can stop saying that. The first readers of Mark's gospel had to wrestle every day with the cost of following Jesus. They had to decide how far are they willing to go. Every Christian has to decide that Jesus is worth rejection from family and community and even to the point of death. How do the scriptures teach us about this or talk about this? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, sound familiar, and sin that clings so closely, clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. I'm looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he endure? The cross, despising the shame, 
and a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus has gone before us, not just as our example, but actually he went before us as our rejected redeemer. We look to him who purchased our redemption. Our redemption was purchased by his rejection. That's the, the cost of the kingdom in this world is the king's life. That's what it costs to bring the kingdom of God, to restore creation, to save you. The king had to die. The king had to be rejected. And it's through that that the kingdom was ushered in. It's because of that that his name is exalted. Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, John the Baptist's death is just a, a little foreshadow of what's to come at the end of the story, right? Jesus is the one who dies, and his death is a lot more significant than John the Baptist's. He was obedient to the point of death, even though even death at a cross. Therefore, it says in Philippians, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that Jesus is the King, the one who was rejected, who died on the cross, and now is alive and see at the right hand of God. He is the King, and we look to Him. Even though the creature rejected the Creator, crucified Him, but it's by that crucifixion, by His wounds we are healed, that's why I had Bob read Isaiah 53, that he's the Messiah who is rejected. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and esteemed him not. They esteemed him not. Despised. Man, most of us know very little of that word in our life. To be despised. Jesus was despised is despised. But on the other side of the wounds, on the other side of the crucifixion, he's exalted. As Bob read earlier, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He's going to be alive again. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's going to prosper. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Any rejection that we face, on the other side of it is satisfaction in Christ. Not because Jesus has gone before us and he has done the same. That he is the one who opened up the way that we might be satisfied in him. That many may be counted righteous because of him. Is being counted righteous enough reward to follow him? Even if everyone else says, that's dumb. That's kind of simple. That's kind of foolish. The reward is great. And the only way we will think that and know the reward is great to follow Jesus in this way is if we see him as valuable, as a king worth following. Knowing him. That knowing him would be the greatest thing I could ever have. The greatest treasure I could ever possess. The greatest joy I could ever experience would come from knowing Jesus. 
and saying, I'll go where he wants me to go and I'll say what he wants me to say. Mark wants us to see as we walk through this that Jesus is worth it all. I want us to close today um, just singing a song. We haven't sung in a while. It's just knowing you. You know, it's an older chorus from a few years probably since we sang it. But there's nothing greater than knowing Christ. And that's the ultimate call of discipleship. Whatever the steps we take in this life, the, the good, the victory, the defeats, the whatever it may be, it's all just on way, on the path to seeing and knowing Christ more and more and ultimately seeing him face to face. So I want us to stand together, and I'm just going to lead us in uh, singing this song.